Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 202. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to the regulation and uniform code of military justice. So help me God. This episode, we're going to talk about what it is to be a warrior, all of the good things that happened, and all the bad that created opportunity. I frequently tell you that Catholics must be doing something in this era when the church is in such great need. Now I'm telling you about something specific you can do. I've never asked God to bless the work I'm doing, but rather asked Him to let me do the work He's blessing. If you're inclined to do something for the church that's media-based, I recommend podcasting. Yes, you can launch your own show like this. Podcasting reaches the demographic we need to reach, the 18 to 34 age group. If you're like I was, you know nothing about podcasting. 
I took a course called Podcaster's Paradise, taught by one of the most successful podcasters in the industry, John Lee Dumas. After only three and a half years, I've gone from 40 listeners to over 80,000 listeners. John made me an expert in podcasting, so I recommend Podcaster's Paradise for you too. Then you can begin doing something important for God. Just click on the Podcaster's Paradise link in my show notes at cantankerouscatholic.com. The first thing I want to do is to remind you to send me your questions for Bishop Strickland. We're running low on questions. This is a wonderful opportunity to ask or say anything to an Orthodox bishop that you've always thought about asking or saying. So send me your questions. Just so you can see all I'm going to tell you is from a Catholic perspective, I'm going to first give you the preface that led to the events as they happened so quickly. September 29th is the Feast of St. Michael the Archangel. He's the warrior angel who cast Lucifer out of heaven when he rebelled against God. The astonishing thing is, Lucifer was in the highest and most powerful choir of angels, and Michael is in the next to the lowest. Despite this, for love of God, Michael took on Lucifer. That made this the first David and Goliath-type confrontation, thus giving us an example and inspiration for how we're to live our Catholic lives. On St. Michael's feast day, inspired by his courage, I began a daily prayer to him, begging him to make me a warrior like him. I've always been a warrior, but I've never had the courage and tenacity of St. Michael. On the second day I prayed this prayer, I thought, are you insane? Do you realize what you're asking for? What I was actually asking for was hardships in my life of biblical proportions to make me a warrior. I thought about this for a few moments, asking myself if I really wanted to take on more suffering for the sake of the kingdom. After all, my entire Catholic life of nearly 35 years has been a study in suffering because I asked God when I was a neophyte to let me die a martyr and to make me a saint. But then I looked at a crucifix. Yes, 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 I was willing to accept more suffering for the sake of the kingdom. Several months before, the doctors told me I was dying from a systematic infection that's attacking my internal organs, and I was already getting thrice-weekly treatment for wounds on my right leg, which are potentially deadly for a diabetic suffering additional health problems. Almost immediately after asking St. Michael to win the graces from God to make me a warrior like him, things began to happen. The wounds on my foot and leg were healing nicely. When my nurse applied new dressings on September 30th, everything looked good and was progressing. When he looked again on October the 3rd, the following Monday, it was obvious that the big toe was dying. I had black flesh and seam beyond repair. I went to the doctor the next day. She called in the chief of vascular surgery to look at my foot. He took one look at my foot and said he would remove my leg just below the knee and was admitting me to the hospital right then. Aided by my wound doctor, I explained that I couldn't go into the hospital then because Mrs. Sixpack has dementia and I didn't have anyone to stay with her at night and on the weekend. I told him I'd have to try to find someone. 
In the meantime, I was told that when I came back, I'd have to go into the emergency room at the VA hospital to check in. This was the first instance of God's mercy. I spent 24 hours trying to find someone who could stay with my wife. Friends suggested that I move my wife temporarily into an institution. These people know nothing about dementia. Taking my wife out of familiar surroundings and routines would at best drastically advance her dementia and at worst kill her. So an institution for my wife was out of the question. I was about to give up hope finding someone to stay with her. I had to go to the bathroom. I used that opportunity to pray, God, I don't mind these additional penances and hardships, but please don't let them negatively impact my wife. At that exact instant, the phone rang. Because I was indisposed, I missed the call. When I listened to the voicemail, it was my brother. Well, I call him my brother. He's actually my cousin. He was the closest thing I had to a brother growing up, so he's my brother. Anyway, when I called my brother back, he said that my mom had called him. He said, we got this. I've got medical appointments I can't miss, but Irma can leave right now. Irma's my brother's wife. It took her about five hours to get ready, but then she drove straight up here from her home over 250 miles away. I don't know why I didn't think of Mikey and Irma, probably because they spent a lot of time traveling. But God thought of him. Between Irma and my home health care aide, my wife was very well taken care of. All that was left to do was to let you six-pack warriors know what was going on and ask for your prayers. Now, I asked St. Michael, and therefore God, to make me a warrior. I expected God to make me more of a warrior for the faith. He may yet do that, but it seems he wants to make me, at least for now, a warrior for my brothers at arms. My experience at trying to check in was my first clue about things to come. I sat in the emergency room for over five hours waiting to be assigned a bed. Each time I asked, I was told they didn't have an open bed. It's amazing how they found a bed for me within minutes when I expressed my anger and threatened to take matters into my own hands. As I was wheeled through the ward to my room, I saw numerous empty beds. So much for trying to locate me a bed. The next day was the day of my amputation. The chief of vascular surgery came in to see me before the amputation. We talked about what he'd do. At that point, he was still expecting to have to take off my leg below the knee. After removing my toe, he performed an angiogram to increase blood flow to my foot. I was overjoyed to awaken recovery to discover I had only lost a toe. Thanks be to God that he answered the prayers of you six-pack warriors. I'd experienced no pain until about four hours after surgery. The other veteran in my room had been given a knee replacement surgery earlier that day. Both of us rang the nurse's station to ask for some relief. When a nurse eventually came, she yelled at us for calling the nurse's station, then lectured us about asking for medication when it wasn't scheduled. Since I was in pain, I wasn't very patient at that point. I told her that if she wasn't going to do anything for us, quit lecturing us and get the hell out of our room. I can't recall which night it was, but one night a nurse came in and moved my wheelchair to the opposite side of the room. 
When I protested, she responded by telling me that she needed to be able to easily get to me in my bed, and that would take precedence over my wheelchair being available to me. Later, I had to have a bowel movement. I rang the nurse's station repeatedly, but to no avail. I spotted a woman in the hall who I knew worked there. I got her attention and asked for her help. She replied that mine wasn't her assigned room. I said, all right then, I'll just go in the bed. I was a bit more vulgar than to say I'll go in my bed. And she brought me my wheelchair. I was admitted into the hospital because one of the four wounds on my right leg became life-threatening and the amputation of my toe became necessary. Not once during that entire week were any of my other wounds treated. That could have very well resulted in an additional amputation or worse. All of the physicians on my treatment team wanted me to transfer to Jefferson Barracks VA Hospital for at least six weeks of antibiotic treatment through an IV, but I had to opt for discharge instead. My wife has dementia, and I had no one to stay with her for that extended period of time. The post-surgical treatment plan was to treat me with IV antibiotics at home. On the day I was to be discharged, I was told that the infectious disease doctor decided to give me an oral treatment at home. Just before I was discharged, my wound doctor came into the room. She asked why I refused the IV treatment at home. I told her that I didn't refuse, and anyone who said I did is a liar. I can prove that I didn't refuse IV treatment. A part of my treatment was to use a mechanical system called a wound vac. An airtight seal is applied to the area requiring treatment, then a tube is led from the sealed area to the mechanical device. The day before my discharge, a hospital wound vac was attached to me. On the morning I was to be discharged, the seal was broken when I transferred from my wheelchair to the toilet. The nurse assigned to me that shift, one of the few competent and committed nurses assigned to me, put a new seal on my foot for the wound vac. No sooner than the new seal had been attached than the surgeon and a resident on his team came in. They proceeded to remove the new seal, despite the fact that I was supposed to be leaving the hospital with a portable wound vac. They replaced the seal with a bandaged dressing. Within about a half an hour, the dressing was soaked in blood. I had to tie a personal belongings bag to my foot to catch the blood. The next day, when my home health care nurse saw the dressing, he was shocked. He said that the dressing was unprofessional, dangerous, and perhaps even criminal. When the surgeon came into my room to see me before I was discharged, the last words he said to me were, You'll be back to give me your leg. I was astounded that a surgeon could say such a thing to me. It seemed to me like a very spiteful thing to say because I wouldn't transfer to the other hospital. There were many other things that took place that week, but I won't bore you with an extended episode just to relate them. But I do need to tell you that I witnessed a number of other abuses heaped out on my brothers in arms. That's why I'm going to fight. There's no correcting what happened to me. What's done is done but I still have a moral obligation to fight in order to stop abuses to my brothers-at-arms in the future. I was there with some Vietnam vets, a Korean War vet, and a number of Desert Storm men. 
Nobody deserves to be treated as we were, but most especially combat veterans. These men were part of the 1% of Americans who serve our country and defend the other 99% of Americans who either couldn't or wouldn't swear an oath to defend America. I've always been a warrior, but not the sort of warrior St. Michael is. I lack his courage and tenacity. That's why I asked to be made a warrior like him. So it seems my first act as a St. Michael sort of warrior is to imitate him in a David and Goliath-type combat with the VA. To begin this battle, I've written a very detailed report on what happened to me and what I witnessed. I sent that report to my rhino congressman and both senators. I haven't ruled out litigation. People working at the VA have chosen to go to war with me. Well, they picked the right cracker for that. If they want war, I'll give them a war. Many of those people shouldn't be around dogs, much less war veterans. So I'm going to fight and see how many jobs I can take from these cruel and conscienceless people. Keep this in mind as you walk through life, especially regarding the Catholic Church. You're obligated to fight all the evils in the church, from the local renegade parish priests to cowardly or evil bishops to the USCCB criminal empire. The motivating thought you need to keep in mind is that if you don't do anything to change what's wrong, you're just another part of the problem. You need to be a part of the solution. If you haven't listened to episode 200, you need to. Now. That episode will tell you how to save the church. Then you need to ask St. Michael to make you a warrior. Don't be afraid. In Matthew 7:13, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So don't be afraid of facing hardships and difficulties that God permits to come your way. If you're not experiencing heavy hardships, you're most likely choosing the wide gate. So be courageous and generous with God. You'll find that he won't be outdone in generosity. Can you see yourself making converts? Very few books have ever been written to teach the mechanics of practical Catholic evangelization, something all Catholics are obliged to do. Of the books available, none teach you a step-by-step method for actually cultivating an inquirer, then taking that inquirer all the way to the baptismal font. Until now, nobody is more qualified to teach Catholic evangelization than Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy. Joe Sixpack has made hundreds of converts since 1988 in small group and one-on-one venues, and 84 of them are his adult godchildren. Consequently, Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, is a virtual treasure trove of how-to resources for evangelization. In the Lay Evangelist's Handbook, Joe Sixpack will show you how to become one of God's rock stars of evangelization, what the two primary obligations are for all Catholics that most people don't know how to begin the journey to becoming a saint, the actual mechanics of productive evangelization, the dangers of nice Catholicism, how to hear God laugh, what to do step-by-step to win over a convert, and much, much more. 
get your copy of the Lay Evangelist's Handbook by Joe Sixpack, The Every Catholic Guy, today in print or ebook on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, and Kobo. It's time for the Sacred Heart Wins with Bishop Joseph Strickland. Each week, His Excellency answers your toughest questions about the Catholic faith, the problems in the church, spiritual questions, catechetical topics, or anything else you want to know. If you have a question, just email it to joe at cantankerouscatholic.com. Now here's Bishop Strickland and Joseph Pack, the Every Catholic Guy. Six-Pack Warriors, welcome to the Sacred Heart Wins. Once again this week, we're with Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas. How are you today, Bishop? Good, Joe. How are you? Okay, great. I know you're running a hot clock, so let's go ahead and get into it. Edmund asks, how can we encourage our bishop to support Archbishop Salvatore Corleone's pastoral decision to exclude Pelosi from receiving the Eucharist? Well, I think um, simply contact your, contacting your bishop and expressing that support for Archbishop Corleone's um, decision and uh, encouraging him to, to really um, uh, support that. I mean, whether or not the bishop... Uh, chooses to do that, but I think um, that's what I would suggest. And if if the bishops hear enough of that um, call for support, I'm sure a lot of bishops do support what Archbishop Corleone has decided. Uh, he he's very well respected among his brother bishops, and uh, I think a lot of them just choose not to to get into it, but. Um, I, I would just encourage them because I'm sure Archbishop Corleone would appreciate the support. I've expressed my support to him, and I know yes, a number of bishops have. And the more support there is, it's it's supporting in the truth of Christ in our Catholic faith. It's as simple as that. I saw when uh, uh, Archbishop Corleone did this, I was very much encouraged. I mean, it only took him a decade. Uh, but the fact is that he did it, and I was so happy to see that. And you were among uh, roughly two dozen bishops who supported him publicly, uh, and I really appreciated that. I thought that we were going to begin to see a wave of bishops speaking out more and doing more like you and Cardinal Burke have been doing. But then Francis kind of pulled the rug out from under him, didn't he? Yeah, you, you pretty much. Uh, with what happened in Rome, uh, at mm -hmm. least that's that's what happened, yeah. Yeah, I was sad to see that. Mark asks, uh, do faithful bishops really believe that not exposing the corruption in the church is in the best interest of the church? Good question. Well... This faithful bishop doesn't. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, the truth is the truth. It, you know, and, and certainly exposing things needs to be done always with the intention of 
bringing people to the truth and bringing reconciliation, bringing peace. Um, so not just in an attack sense, but uh, as we both know, Joe, the truth comes out. Um, Amen. And to be proactive about presenting the truth and being transparent. I mean, the, even in a small diocese, things can be complex in your dealing with the values of, of different people, I mean, and, and competing needs that are there. It can be complicated, but to to share the truth and to be as transparent as possible, I think is ultimately what brings healing. And it can hopefully rebuild uh, the trust between bishops and their flocks, because I know a lot of people, uh, the, the trust or the respect level toward bishops um, I experienced that, and I think every bishop does, that some people just don't believe us anymore, um, sadly, because of some of the corrupt activities of, of relati- relatively a few, but some very high profile that uh, it's undermined the confidence of people. How do we rebuild that confidence? I think we've got to be uh, truthful and respectful and um, and and not just expose things for the sake of exposing. I mean, you as a family man, there's certain things that are nobody's business and don't need True. to be just laid out there. It's not like we just open the doors and everything, because again, it begins to tread on the the rights of individuals. But I think that always has to be balanced with what is good for the community of the church and being as transparent as possible. And hopefully we can return to a place where the bishop can say, I really can't share more information on that. And people will respect that as not just a cover up, but as a genuine balancing of, of the, the truth that does need to be shared. That we're keep not the in the eighth commandment right now, So Yeah. The USCCB as a body, has really created this uh, situation where bishops aren't trusted or believed anymore. Uh, And a number of people have asked me, I'm going to ask you because I don't know the answer. First of all, can a bishop renounce his membership to the USCCB? And number two, can he form uh, a parallel type organization for faithful bishops? Well, um, honestly, Joe, I don't know the the technical aspects of that, but I do understand there's some things canonically, um, not directly in the Code of Canon Law, but, you know, the Code of Canon Law is not all the laws, but there are regulations and there there are certain laws that that govern the church. I believe there are some... uh, requirements that a diocese and a diocesan bishop is to be part of the conference of catholic bishops i think there's some canonical requirements there honestly i don't know the details i don't know what the the limits are and everything but um on the other question certainly bishops are are free to affiliate with each other not as sort of a a shadow conference but as you know, a group of bishops. I mean, each state has uh, a conference of bishops in, in, in some uh, form. And so the association of bishops is is certainly acceptable. 
but I, I guess canonically not in opposition to the the national the official national bishops conference. And I have to plead ignorance to the details of that canonical requirement. But I think there there is a canonical basis for uh, a bishop not being able to just opt out of the National Bishops Conference. Okay, thank you. And maybe sometime in the near future, we can see a group of faithful bishops forming kind of a club. <laughs> uh, Peter asks, Shouldn't we occasionally hear sensitive issues like contraception, divorce, homosexual propaganda, etc., mentioned, even explicated, from the pulpit? I never do. The church sometimes feels like a genteel ladies' club where certain things simply aren't mentioned. Well, I, and I think that that is a real issue, that it has to be addressed um, with pastoral sensitivity. Because honestly, uh, I've uh, encouraged some some talk. About, I mean, like specifically the topic of contraception, and uh, when when the um, Humanae Vitae anniversary rolls around every July, and I actually got feedback from some of the faithful. Because what you have to realize is they're in the mass setting. The it's the family gathered, so their children. There are Elderly, they're all. Kind, it's a very mixed audience, so I don't know that the Sunday Mass is the best place for getting into detail. Certainly, I think things can be mentioned without in an in an adult respectful manner. That you know, I mean, even children can hear. Maybe saying, "What's that?" But um, <laughs> but I think where where the real issue is certainly for the priest to be very clear about what the church teaches um, and to to at least allude to things like um, fornication, masturbation, contraception. I mean, the various morality questions that are there, abortion. Um, but the detail or the more specific teaching, I don't know that the, the, the Sunday homily is the best place for that because of the the mixed community that is there. I think all of us would agree that, you know, young children don't need to be hearing some things just like, I mean, I know in my family growing up, I mean, you know, there's certain things that mom and dad would talk about that they're not talking about in front of us, at least not until we get older. Certainly there are things that teenagers need to hear that, probably are more, much more pointed and explicit because they're living in the, the swamp of the immoral world and they need to, to be able to face it and deal with it, things like pornography. But I think you do have to be careful about how you address that in the Sunday homily setting. But alluding to it and then having a session for a more um, specific audience uh, to follow up, I think that's the way to address it. And we've We've tried to do that in our parishes. That sounds like a good uh, good solution, good compromise, because you're right. Uh, there are a lot of things mentioned in Peter's question that I wouldn't want my small child to hear, right. you know, so that's very good. Javier asks, what 
prayer or action plan can you recommend to remind our Catholic families that God, the good, uh, has conquered the devil, evil? Well, uh, the St. Michael prayer is a great prayer that I think every family just needs to make part of their daily life because it's Amen. a reminder of the reality of Satan, but that reminds us that Jesus Christ and the Archangel Michael, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and all the saints are the army that are there to protect us and help us work against those evil forces. Um, Beyond that, uh, I would encourage, uh, you know, I always encourage uh, prayer in the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament for families and for individuals, because the best way to fight evil is to be strengthened and steeped in the holy presence of, of God. And Jesus Christ is really there, body and blood, soul and divinity. And, and the more we can spend time with him, we may not be able to detect the power that, that comes from that, but it's real. And it helps us to be strengthened against those temptations that the St. Michael prayer mentions. I just love to hear you talk about good, evil, and uh, the Eucharist and prayer. You you always do such a remarkable job on that, and it's not promoted enough to our people. It's not. Uh, by the way, St. Michael prayer every morning. <laughs> every morning. Okay, Excellency. Uh, it's been another great segment. I guess we'll see you again next week, okay? Okay, thanks, Joe. Okay, goodbye. Did you know that statistics from Caras say that 70% of Catholics get 100% of their Catholic information from your parish Sunday bulletin? After my pastor mentioned to me that he'd like to find a way to catechize the whole parish without setting up a class, this little statistic inspired an idea. With my pastor's permission, I began writing a bulletin insert called What We Believe, Why We Believe It. Since it's merely inserted into the bulletin, it's intrusive, meaning that parishioners have to remove it to read the bulletin. In the process, they read this little thumbnail catechism lesson, and they let Father know that they love them. You see, I teach the faith with stories, anecdotes, and parables. They're not your typically boring catechesis. And best of all, I teach why we're supposed to believe the church's teachings, which affirms your parishioners in their faith. As a convert and consecrated member of the Marian Catechist Apostolate under the direction of Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke, I teach the entire faith, even tackling the really tough moral issues. You can learn more by watching an 11-minute video by clicking the link in my show notes that says Six-Pack System Bulletin Inserts. So you can try it without risk, you can get it for three months. You can even download three samples while you're on the page with the video. This is ideal for good priests who want to help their parishioners become fully catechized, and a lot of lay people get a subscription for their parish as a way to support the parish without having to give the bishop any of their money. To learn more, click on the link in my show notes that says Six-Pack System Bulletin Inserts. 
It just requires 11 minutes of your time. I am hard, but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. Ours is a very cynical world. Because we live in a post-Christian era where God is not only no longer believed in, but is actually mocked, miracles are seen as phenomena that can't be explained only because we lack the technology to fully understand certain laws of nature. This cynicism affected the Christian world as well. Even among our separated Protestant brethren, I've heard it say that we're beyond the age of miracles, that miracles no longer take place. Baloney. Miracles take place every single day throughout the world. Some of those miracles are working in a perpetual state, some for the entire 2,000-year existence of the church. Fact of the matter is, the majority of miracles taking place around the globe only happen in the Roman Catholic Church. Take the incorruptibility of some saints, for example. From St. Cecilia, who died in 177, to Padre Pio, who died in 1968, we have 2,000 years of ongoing miracles. Here are just a few of the more than 100. St. Catherine Labouret, who gave us the miraculous medal, died on December 31, 1876. When her body was exhumed 56 years later, it was unblemished. Her eyes were as blue as the day she died. The saint is still lying in state in a crystal reliquary at a chapel in Paris, and she looks as if she only died yesterday. St. Bernadette Subiru, who was the seer of Our Lady of Lourdes, was exhumed 30 years after her death in 1879, looking as she did the day she died. In fact, due to her frail and stressful health throughout her life, she was homely at best, yet seemed to grow beautiful after her death. She can be seen lying in state at the mother house of her order in Nevers, France. St. John Vianney, the curé of ours, died in 1859 and was exhumed in 1904. He lies in state for all to see above the main altar in the Basilica at Ars, France. St. Pio, Padre Pio, died in 1968. There are still thousands of people alive today who knew the saint. His incorrupt body can be seen lying in state at San Giovanni Rotondo in Italy, where it has been since 2008. There are countless other miracles. About six months ago, I told you about the miracle of the sun in Fatima, 1917, and the miraculous Battle of Lepanto in 1571. St. John Paul the Great performed healing miracles during his life. Padre Pio not only had the miraculous gifts of bilocation, the stigmata, the genuine gift of tongues, and the ability to read souls, but he also performed healing miracles during his lifetime. 
St. John Bosco performed healing miracles, multiplying food as Christ did with the bread and fish, and could read the souls of his boys to get them to come clean in the confessional. From the time that St. Bernadette was shown the miraculous spring by Our Lady at Lourdes in 1858, there have been numerous miracles taking place through the use of the miraculous water. Indeed, the grotto itself is a testimony to the many miracles that have taken place and continue to take place by all the crutches, walkers, and wheelchairs that have been left behind. So prolific are the miracles at Lourdes that the CBS television news magazine 60 Minutes has run three separate segments on Lourdes since its debut in 1968. In these boot camps, I've also related miracles that have taken place through the sacramental known as the Brown Scapular of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, as well as the Rosary, Miracles of Saints, and even Angels. Nowhere do you find more miraculous events from God than inside the Roman Catholic Church. But the greatest, most sublime, longest-running miracle in the church happens every single day and has since Jesus was walking among men. Of course, I'm speaking of the miraculous transubstantiation of the Most Holy Eucharist. I've heard so many Catholics tell me they'd love to be able to witness a miracle of God. My almost indignant response has always been, but you do see one on a regular basis. Let's go to Mass and I'll show you. Every time you hear the priest say the words of consecration at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, you're witnessing a miracle, and it's one Jesus promised in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. When the priest repeats Jesus' words, this is my body, this is my blood, the ordinary bread and wine cease being what they appear to be and become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. How much more of a miracle could anybody want? When I was being taught the Catholic faith, I made the intellectual decision to become a Catholic while studying the ninth article of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Through the Church's teachings in that article, it was proven to me that Jesus Christ founded the Catholic Church. But the emotional decision to become a Catholic came when I was taught about the Most Holy Eucharist. It was proven to me beyond a doubt that when the priest says the words of consecration, a genuine miracle takes place. That is when Jesus comes from heaven to rest on the altar so he can be given to me to commune with me and become a part of my body and soul. And it's only possible for this miracle to take place within the Catholic Church, which is why it's mortal sin against the faith to receive non-Catholic communion or to participate in certain acts of non-Catholic worship. Do you realize you know someone who regularly performs miracles? Well, you do. That would be your priest or any Catholic priest for that matter. Through holy orders, a sacrament given to his church to apply the redemption he won for us with his life until the end of time, the priest was given the power to perform two miracles on a daily basis. One miracle he performs is the miracle of forgiving our sins in the sacrament of penance. The other miracle he performs is one that takes place at the Mass. Through his intentions alone are your sins forgiven. By his hands and through his intentions alone, the priest commands Almighty God to come down from heaven into his hands, and God obeys. Only in the Catholic Church.
We're not beyond the age of miracles, and we never will be as long as this world exists. We just have to open our eyes and see them with the childlike eyes of innocence and faith. Do you like to write? Would you like to learn to write? What if I told you that anyone can learn to write and build a six-figure income as a result? I'm talking about copywriting. The sales letters you've read, the radio and TV commercials that you hear and see, and virtually everything you see online from asking for donations to selling things was written by a copywriter. And those jobs pay big. The American Writers and Artists Institute, or AWAI, will teach you everything you need to know to be a highly paid copywriter. Then, after you've completed their comprehensive course, AWAI will even help you get your first high-paying client. And this is a perfect career for stay-at-home moms because you can work at your leisure from your internet-connected devices from anywhere in the world. Learn more by clicking the link in my show notes that says American Writers and Artists Institute. Do it today. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Francis of Assisi. He said, Sanctify yourself and you will sanctify society. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. On a Friday, King Ferdinand of Naples had to make a hasty trip to Rome with his small son. Traveling in disguise, they stopped at an inn for a meal. A number of Catholics were eating meat. However, one young man was eating fish, despite the ridicule of others. You may do as you choose, he declared, but I'm going to keep the law of the church for as long as I live. Hearing this, the king joined the conversation, praised the youth, and asked him where he was going. I'm going to Naples, replied the young man, to join the army of King Ferdinand. Although I was born in Florence, I don't want to join the army of my native city because the soldiers are so careless about their religious duty. The king took out his notebook, wrote a few lines, sealed the note, and gave it to the youth. Take this letter to the address on it. Perhaps it will help you when you reach Naples. The letter was addressed to the commander-in-chief of the king's army. Every honor was shown the boy, and the rank of lieutenant was conferred on him, as the king had directed in the hastily written notes. If an earthly king rewarded so generously for keeping the law of the church for abstinence, how much more will the king of kings reward such obedience? While we're no longer required to abstain on the Fridays outside of Lent, every Friday of the year is a day of penance. If you don't abstain on Fridays outside of Lent, you still must perform an act of penance that's at least equal to giving up meat. To not do so during a substantial part of the year is a mortal sin, just like it is during Lent. Keep that in mind. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy. 
Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.